And I, I just kept reading and listening to podcasts and everything. And I came across this thing called syndication, which frankly, I'd never heard of before, at least not in this capacity. And was and it kind of blew my mind. And so I thought, yeah, I can buy, how long will it take me to buy a hundred single family houses versus one 100 unit apartment building and sort of, so the ability to scale faster was very appealing to me. Welcome everyone to the show. We're joined today by our trusted colleague, Rebecca. How are we doing, Bex? I'm good, thank you. Always a pleasure to have you back on. And Jason Ballara. Jason is the CEO and co-founder of Lark Capital. Uh, Jay, thanks so much for, for coming on today. I know I did your show a couple of weeks back, or at this point, it may be a few months back. So it's always a pleasure to reconnect and thanks for taking the time today. Yeah, no, I appreciate you having me on. And uh, yeah, I think probably it has been a couple of months if the time goes yeah. by so fast, but yeah. Uh, but no, thank you for having me. I, I appreciate it. So um, Doc, as I will <laughs> refer to him for the rest of the show, uh, Doc is... Um, a veterinary and he has found a really interesting niche I think in the market and he's doing uh, investing now through uh, Lark Capital which uh, I, I, I guess the idea is you're targeting folks in your uh, in your world in your universe is that how this is working yeah that's I mean that's my idea we we don't uh, you know I, I wouldn't turn away investors that are not in the veterinary community but the you know, there, there was talk about, you know, sort of finding your your avatar that you're uh, aiming towards. And and I also think that in the veterinary community, we not that a lot of people get a lot of financial training, but but we don't. We go to school for a long time uh, and, and ultimately, you know, vets get very wrapped up in kind of just functioning in their day-to-day -day work, right? Just, I gotta, I gotta help as many animals as I possibly can without, you know, without having any business sense, without really thinking, I think a lot of times just about their own financial future. And so, I, and, and that was me, like basically all of my life until, you know, sort of recently. And I decided that, you know, it was just, you can only work so much. Right. And so it was kind of figuring out a way out of that. But my, my goal as part of it, as part of my journey is to help other veterinarians, uh, you know, kind of reach financial freedom, freedom as well. So you, know, you touched on, on something that <clears throat> we're really taking a deep dive on now, financial yeah. literacy, uh, where we have book club here at the office yeah. and currently we're doing rich dad, poor dad. And, awesome. you know, I, I think it's, it, it's certainly not just vets, right? I think that right. across the spectrum, like yeah. for whatever reason, and it, it, it wasn't obvious, right, until no. we got halfway through the book. But then it became like so obvious that financial literacy, it's just not part of any core curriculum, it feels. And it's just absent from the discussion, you know, across the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. I think I mentioned that in our last one, our last book club. I said, I don't understand why we're not teaching this, you know, in high school. And James was like, yeah, even college, we're not learning this. And it's it's such important stuff. Right. No, totally agree. And I, you know, a, a big part of it, like I said, is helping vets and, and helping them gain financial freedom. But also, I'm a big, you know, very passionate about the power of time. And so, of course, I want to sort of impart this stuff on my kids. 
but also, like you said, the, the high school, college age people, it, you can get started with a lot less at a younger age than if you pick it up in your forties, like I have, where it's like, I just feel like I'm, I'm a lot of times playing catch up in terms of trying to get to that, uh, you know, goal of, of whatever you want as passive income. So it's kind of the, the younger generation, I think is, is it'll be really important for us to kind of, and with social media and things like that, it's a lot easier, right? We can, we can put things out like your, your podcast and, and, you know, there's so many ways to get it out there now. So I, 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 folks, I think it's really important we spend a minute here and, and talk about what's kind of at the core of of what Doc is doing there at Lark Capital. And you know, you you had you had said time is is the most valuable commodity, right? And you had talked mm-hmm. about uh, you you don't want to be in you know a vet or in any practice forever. I think most of us share those sentiments, but we don't understand the trap of trading time for money, right? There's, uh, and this is something that we didn't really start to focus on until the last couple of years is when it it really started to take center stage for us as, you know, as we kind of climb the ranks in our local market and we're getting involved in bigger projects and and with that comes um, better and more um, stronger consulting contracts, if you will, right? But those, those contracts, which are great, because if you're in our business, uh, it's feast or famine, right? It, it, it almost feels like it doesn't matter how much success you've had in real estate. There's just those, that's the ebb and flow in the nature of the, of the business. So the consulting contracts become a great way to have just that steady cash flow that, you know, is coming in every month, but you fall into the trap of trading time for money. And I, I would assume in your position, right? There's only so many surgeries you can perform a day. There's only so many animals that you can see uh, throughout the course of whatever the the office hours are for the day, week, month, or year. And you really are kind of bound by that and what the market will allow you to charge. Was that some of what was at the the genesis of of you making this transition? Yeah. I mean, it's it's a funny, quick little story that I've told people before is that, you know, now, I, now I'm talking about, hey, you need a retirement plan. These are the things you can do to kind of set yourself for, up for the future. Well, I, within five years ago, my retirement plan was don't retire. Like that's what I, that's literally what I, it was like, I like working. I'll just keep working. I didn't, I didn't have a plan for it. And so it was, it's when I talk to people about this stuff, I'm like, look, I've made every one of the mistakes. I've, I've done it all wrong, but now I figured it out. And listen, this is like this is very doable for everybody. And so, yeah, you're. I, but I got into that, you know, trading time for money, sort of hamster wheel, where it was just, I, I, I learned to work hard at a very young age. I worked for my uncle. I've basically always had jobs that were in some way production based. Even when I worked for him, he paid me by the day. So if I got my work done faster. I had more time at the end of the day, effectively making more per hour, right? So I, I've always, I've, I've always had that sort of thing, and and even with, uh, you know, being most most veterinarians, there's some level of like production compensation with it, and you you probably would be hard pressed to find a more efficient surgeon than me. I, I just, and I'm not saying that to like boast or anything. I'm saying that to say it doesn't matter. At the end of the day. I can only do so many surgeries in a day, whether that's patient-based or my technical staff 
or whatever it is. So I feel like I have maxed out what I can actually do in a day for in terms of surgery and still be, you know, and still be doing a good product, right? Like I want to, I want to make sure that every one of my patients does well, that's first and foremost. So th- th- at some point you're just cutting corners and rushing and, and I have no interest in doing that, but it, I got on that, you know, so I got on that hamster wheel and it, it wasn't until I had my son that I realized I, I can't do that forever or I can, but I'll miss out on everything with him. So folks uh, don't often make the connection and, and sometimes candidly, there's a negative connotation associated with being a real estate agent or being a realtor. Um, and for us, it's just been the the gatekeeper to all of this other opportunity, right? And when you're in this business um, and you're trading what in most cases is the highest priced asset someone's going to have in their portfolio. Um, you are not bound by that trading time for money model as much as you would be in a production style environment, right? So there's an opportunity to, from the sales side, really perform exceptionally well. And then uh, if, if you're trying to put it all together and you're seeing the big picture, the idea is to graduate into investments and to, to start building your own portfolio. So uh, yep. for us, it's a natural progression, right? We're in it, we're around it, we're very familiar with uh, the market, the terms, you know, uh, we understand what's a good deal and what's not a good deal. I'm, I'm really curious, how did you make that that leap? Because it, it feels like a leap, right? Going from being a vet to, you know, BNC class multifamily investing. What, what was that journey like for you? Yeah, so uh what i sort of isn't really in my bio is before i went to vet school i worked in construction a lot so i have a construction background uh before uh during vet school after i've i've done a number of like single family uh flips and things like that and i've worked for contractors i worked for an electrician uh the the house we live in right now like we we gutted it to the studs and i did almost everything myself. Like I can, I can build a house. Right. So I, I, so my thought was always, I've always loved it. I've always loved construction. Um, uh, like yourselves, I'm from the Northeast. I, when I was sort of deciding sticking with construction or going to vet school, honestly, the weather had a lot to do with it. I didn't want to be outside in the winter, you know, up on, up on roofs. Right. Because that's, and and that's what I associated with it at that time, because that's what I had been doing. I was the guy that carried the shingles up the ladder and, you know, that stuff. So that's what I associated real estate and construction with not being on sort of like the development side of it, where you're just the one orchestrating everything. Right. And so I have uh, I have that background in construction Um, when we sort of reached the point where uh, we finished up our current house. We had our son uh, actually not in that order. then we, I was like, oh, I have, I have some time, which, which is silly to say. It's like, I have, I have some extra time. Maybe now it's time to get into investing in real estate, you know, sort of get back to it. I had always done it as basically my own houses. I owned a three family in Boston at one point, like little stuff. So I started looking into, um, I live in Los Angeles, so it's very hard to cash flow almost anything, right? Like it's yeah, hard to yeah. buy something here as I'm sure it is in New York as well. Like there's the, the, the costs are, are hard. And so um, buying something here to, to rent it didn't really make sense financially. I 
I would happily flip here in Los Angeles because I think you can make a lot of money that way. But again, it's just adding another job. And so I started to do some research, you know, listening to podcasts, reading books. And first I started out where I was going to do uh, long distance burrs basically on single family. And I, um, it just so happens I had a friend who used to work here with me, moved to Georgia, to Atlanta and became a realtor. And so I was like, Georgia's a good market. I'll talk to her. And so essentially made that connection. I actually had kind of everything in place to do it on a single family basis, uh, to do rentals on a single family basis. And I, I just kept reading and listening to podcasts and everything. And I came across this thing called syndication, which frankly, I'd never heard of before, at least not in this capacity. And was and it kind of blew my mind. And so I thought, yeah, I can buy, how long will it take me to buy a hundred single family houses versus one 100 unit apartment building and sort of, so the ability to scale faster was very appealing to me. Um, I like the idea of long distance because I think if I get something here in LA, I won't be able to keep my hands off it. Like I, it will become another job because that's just kind of the way I am. So the long distance thing is good, but I mean, I think that's kind of <laughs> making a short story long. That's how I, I made that, you know, sort of transition. So it wasn't, it wasn't crazy that I would think about real estate or construction or any of that. Like the, the asset management side of multifamily ownership is actually what's most exciting to me because I understand construction, right? So I can go there, walk these properties and I can look around and know what needs to be done. I know how to, you know, sort of, if a bid sounds crazy, you know what I mean? Like there's just, I can speak that language. So it makes sense to me um, to, to do that asset management. So that, that's kind of, like I said, in the, the journey, you know, that I went through to kind of get to that point of, of looking at multifamily deals. So you, you've covered a lot of ground there and just for the, the audience's benefit. Um, when Doc is talking about, it's hard to make something cash flow. Uh, yet you can do flips in a market like LA, and, and we experience this here in New York quite a bit. Uh, the barrier to entry in, in these bigger cities oftentimes is just so astronomically high that it, 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 it's very difficult to, uh, to rationalize putting the significant amount of capital toward a transaction that you have to lay out, right? Your cash on caches here are usually very, very challenging. Uh, and your while your rents are great, um, in most cases the 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 purchase price is also extremely inflated, at least as compared to the rest of the country. So when you're doing the fix and flips, right? When you're finding an asset, um, and you're for whatever whatever it needs, you're you're going in, you're adding a second floor, or you're rehabbing it, or you're doing whatever you're doing because of those higher purchase prices. And now where you've got super low interest rates, there's a lot of buying power out there. There's a lot of cash out there. Uh, I found it's a, a great place, these markets, to, to get the seed money together, right. right? To build the experience and to churn a book and to do, you know, as many as it is that you think you need to do to get into that next level. But this is a good place. These types of markets are great to get your feet onto you and build up that bank of cash, if you will, so that you can then go and leverage it in, in other markets. Um, so what markets are you investing in or are you targeting 
now from the multifamily perspective? Yeah, um, mainly uh, Georgia, Atlanta specifically, and and the Carolinas. Um, my wife's from Charlotte, North Carolina, so I know that area pretty well. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. <coughs> we lived in uh, Charleston, South Carolina for a while, so I know that market as well. So there's some parts uh, of the Carolinas that I would love to invest in, but so far I've been working in, in Atlanta mostly. And you're in like center city or are you on the outskirts of Atlanta or are you like out, out in the surrounding counties? More outskirts, more outskirts. I think the surrounding counties are, can be great. Um, but I think right now Atlanta is uh, experiencing such a boom that if you can get that sort of path of progress just outside of center city right now, th those are great deals. And, and you'll have, cash flow because the prices are, are, you know, low enough, but you also have the opportunity for appreciation uh, in, in a relatively short period of time. So it's, it's kind of a, almost like a, you know, twofold play on, on that location. If you went to the, you know, more outer markets in Georgia, I think you'll, you'll still get a lot of cash flow, but probably not quite the appreciation you'll get if you can stay right around Atlanta. So I think Doc is being very um, friendly in what he's describing there. So I, I think, um, not I think, we, we, we're at a point where we really feel very strongly about what's happening in these tertiary yeah. markets, right? Uh, we're seeing primary markets that are always uh, challenging to, to break into. So what happens in a hot market is the secondary markets emerge, right? And there's a lot of damage to be done in the secondary market. But now we're seeing people go to these tertiary markets, right? So when you start getting further and further away from center city and you start playing around the outer, you know, the outskirts of the outer rim, if you will, of the target area, that's where you can get hurt when when the music stops right folks tend to migrate towards center city because of the job opportunities that are there and if you're going to be playing in the rental uh world you, you you need to make make sure that you're at least somewhat centrally located uh to the the employment base if you want to make sure that those apartments are are going to be filling up in good markets and bad right so um i i I appreciate the way you phrase that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, but we're seeing people look that are doing really good in these tertiary markets now. Yeah. Uh, but for the most part, I've been through two, three cycles at this point. We know what it looks like on the other side of this coin. And we're just cautioning our listeners, you know, be smart about don't buy payments, right? There's a lot of folks that are just straight up buying payments. The, there's low interest rates and they're not keeping an eye on when those notes mature because they're in most cases, they're not amortizing over a 15 year term, certainly not a 30 year term. Uh, and they feel like, well, at, at that point, the apartments are rented and the cash flow is coming in and you know, I could just refinance. Right. And, and, and usually when you get to that point, uh, you're faced with much higher interest rates. Right. Uh, inflation, I think, is without question uh, coming. I think it's here, but I think it's coming in, yeah, yeah in a much more meaningful way. Um, and you could be in a, 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 you'd be surprised how fast the music stops in this industry. Like it's shocking 
how quickly the real estate market turns. So I think that's that's really sound advice and, and sound strategy that you're deploying there. Uh, how are you sourcing these deals? You know, uh, do you have boots on the ground there or? Um, I, I don't specifically have boots on the ground at this point. I do know some people in Atlanta, like I mentioned, my, my realtor friend, um, I've met through networking some other um, people that are syndicating in Georgia. Um, and at this point, what I've done is I've, I've just been, you know, sort of making those broker relationships myself. I've gone to Atlanta a number of times. Um, and so I've uh, actually made relationships with property managers. So the, f the funny thing is that the property manager thing is actually what turned out to really help me because I had, you know, anybody who's out there listening and they're like, oh, I want to get into this. You, you, if you read a book about it, you listen, you know, sort of follow the directions. It's going to, they're going to tell you, you need to, to make relationships with brokers. You need to make relationships with property managers. So you have that in place. So when you find a deal, th those things are kind of, you know, uh, already there for you. So I actually worked a lot on that. I mean, that was probably a good nine or 10 months of really just working on relationships, looking at deals over all marketed deals. You know, I didn't, when you're starting out, nobody is likely going to give you the, the off market deal. That's super hot. It's just, it's just not how it generally happens right now. And so I looked at a lot of deals. I, I made relationships with a property management group they would look at, you know, they would go for me to tour the, the properties. Initially, they would send me videos, pictures, tell me what they thought about it. Uh, we got some offers in on a couple. And so, so develop that relationship. And then it was actually the property manager was talking to a deal that was coming online to a broker who, a broker who I actually hadn't met at that point and was like, Hey, this would be a great one for Jason. So it, was true. It it got marketed. I didn't get that off market, but it it came uh, through those relationships. So we actually got to look at it like before it officially went on market, and then through that, when I went to look at that deal, I said, "Hey, what you have anything to the broker? Anything else around here that you think we should look at?" And he's like, "Yeah, we have this other one down the street that that is actually an off market deal that we're working on as well. So we're we're potentially going to have." we have the one under contract, we may potentially have two. So it's the, those relationships and everybody says it, right. It's like, and, and I think even myself, I, I'm not sure that I believed the importance at the beginning, but it really, once you see it start to work, it's, it's pretty incredible. That's so true. Um, so for somebody who might be thinking like, okay, I want to invest in this other market. And you said that you were networking and making relationships. How did you go about that? Did you do it via like social media or was it from going to visit and, you know, finding local brokers and property managers? Yeah, it was, it was mostly phone calls and emails for me uh, because okay. I started this during COVID. And so Got as it. much as I would have loved to be traveling more when it was, when I was starting this process, I really, I'm, I know people did and, and, uh, but, but at the time, uh, my wife was pregnant. Now we have a very, we have a four month old. And so th there was always in the, in my toddlers not vaccinated. So there's just always this stuff right. in our minds that it was like, I, as much as I want to do this and make this work, I'm not willing to put them at risk. And so it was kind of, I always had that in the back of my mind, you know, once the vaccine rolled out, then, then had more comfort levels. So most of it in the beginning yep. was, was phone calls and, and uh, emails, just kind of getting to know people and, and, and just underwriting a lot of deals and talking to the brokers about mm -hmm. them. So it's kind of, 
it's an exercise in persistence, I guess, at, at first. Absolutely. Just, you know, well, this, and, and the thing is, you're going to, and, and everybody says this too, but you're going to underwrite, most of them are going to look bad. Like you're going to underwrite them. And most of the time you're going to be like, it can't possibly be, it can't possibly sell for that. Right. And then it does. And you feel like you're doing something wrong, but like the reality is, is as you mentioned, people are people like syndication's really hot right now and people want to get in. And so people are willing to overpay because the market's been so hot and they're like, well, this is just going to continue. I'll really be able to, to ride that tide, but maybe not, right. Maybe, maybe it will keep going up. I hope so. But, but maybe there's going to come a time where, uh, things, you know, pull back and, and we're all gonna, you, you don't want to get stuck, right? You don't want to, we talked about sort of the avatar and, and me, you know, looking to, to do this and have vets as investors. My, my reputation in the veterinary world is probably way more important to me than my reputation in real estate world right now. And if I'm going to bring in a bunch of vets, essentially a group of people that will be solely trusting me as a, in terms of, cause it's not something that yeah. generally we all know about. They're trusting me. If I lose their money, like I, I'm done on both sides, right? Like then I, <laughs> then I can't do, then I can't do real estate. And I, uh, not that you can't, but I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like it damages yeah, those, yeah. those relationships. And, and I don't want, I don't want that. So, so I've been very conservative uh, in terms of the underwriting and I'm, and I like, the markets like Atlanta and Charlotte, and the, they're a little bit hotter and more competitive. And, and as you mentioned, sure, I could go to, you know, sort of the middle of nowhere and probably get something at a lower base, but I also won't feel as confident that it's going to, that we're going to be able to, to implement the value add uh, program that we want to. So <clears throat> you're deploying a, a, a ground and pound process, right, of identifying the the, the boots on the ground that you're going to have to rely on once you take down a property. So yeah. that is as sound fundamentally as it gets, folks. The, the people don't understand the importance of having the right, even above the brokers, and, and I'm a broker by trade, is having the right asset managers and property managers on the ground for, for a myriad of reasons. But uh, one of which is is they also have access to those deals many times before they they hit the market, and they typically know every single rub about that asset. Right? They know more about that asset than we can ever dare to know on the investment side. So um, that that's about as sound fundamentally as as I've heard from a, a strategy absent being there. I know there's a lot of networking and and folks are doing it on social media. Uh, which is also certainly a, a pathway. Um, look, Doc, the, the music is going to stop. It always does, right? But but that's okay, right? When the music stops, that doesn't mean that the deals stop. They, they change, yeah. right? And the metrics change. But if you're positioned properly, we've found always you could make far more money in a, in a challenging market than you can in, in a hot market like this, because all of that competition that we're talking about, it kind of goes away, yeah. right? And, and real estate loses its luster a little bit. And for a couple of years, people really step back. And when they do that, it creates a vacuum and, and there's opportunity. So um, uh, you, you reference on your site and you've mentioned a few times today that you have a, a, a value add model, right? Mm -hmm. You're seeking class B and class C uh, multifamilies that are value add players. 
days. Could you speak a little bit more about, you know, what is your investment criteria and what does that value add play mean to you? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, in terms of investment criteria, you know, as you mentioned, B and C class, which, which for the most part has to do with vintage and, and location, right? Or yeah, like if people don't know, I mean, the, the year that it was built essentially and, and where it's located, right? So you have uh, the class of the, the asset and then you have the class of the neighborhood essentially. Um, and so it, part of the reason for that sort of asset class strategy is because those are potentially the more affordable uh, properties to take, right? Like an A-class property is going to be probably outside of my comfort zone at this point in terms of like capital raising and things like that. The other thing is that, as I mentioned, construction is my background. So I don't, I don't go into these places that need a lot of work and think, oh man, this is no, I see opportunity, right? I see current ownership hasn't, they, there's, there's a lot of deferred maintenance. They haven't kept up on it. I see this is how we can improve these properties to not only increase rents and increase NOI, but, but make the lives of the tenants better, right? So it's kind of, to me, those are the opportunities. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I think that's that's generally the value add strategy. You know, you go in and uh, fix up the interiors, make sure you've got all of the exteriors um, so that it shows well, right? You don't want to drive, you don't want your tenants or, or prospective buyers in the future and you're trying to exit. You don't want people to, drive onto that, into that property and go, huh, nobody's done anything here for the last five years. Right. But I do when I, <laughs> when I go there and I see that I'm like, that's, that's opportunity. So that's, that's just kind of the way I look at it. And I think that comes from, I mean, you know, <laughs> thankfully my wife tolerates this, but she knows I won't buy a house that's already done. She, she just knows I, at this point, I, I, because I, if I didn't do it and I didn't know it was done right, then I have a hard time, you know, sort of uh, accepting someone else's cosmetic reno. So I, I just, I think that um, that same kind of mentality works for me in, in the multifamily space. And uh, could you talk a little bit about deal size? What, what you know, from a, a price point perspective and, and a unit count perspective, what are you targeting now? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm targeting probably around a hundred units and I would say that probably goes, you know, 70 to 140, 150 would probably be the area. The interesting thing is, is when I started this process, I, I, I got a mentor. Um, I, and I've heard other people say this, it wasn't just my mentor, but you know, people talk about, you can't, you can't make them work as well unless you get over a hundred units, right? That was kind of a big that's a big thing that people talk about. And so when I started, I thought I had to look at 100 units to 250 units. I was like, okay, it's got to be it's got to be this big or there's no point. And and that's actually where the, the the property management relationships came in. So I had been talking to another property management group who I was referred to and they're fantastic. I I have nothing bad to say about them, but they won't do anything less than 100 units. And so then I started it's daunting to think about the amount of capital you have to raise on like a 40 million, $50 million deal. It's just the numbers get sort of scary. And, and I'm sure for experienced people, that's not the case they, they see that as, you know, they've already got a list of investors and things like that. So when I started looking at the numbers and what I would have to raise from capital, and that's what, that's mainly what deterred me and made me think maybe I should look at some of these smaller ones. So then I started uh, when I would ask the, the original property management group about, you know, what they thought about 
a you know say a 70 unit they're like oh that's too small for us so i just started asking around who who does those who who manages those properties in in the atlanta msa came across um i was introduced to to meridian uh property management group and and they've just been fantastic and and they'll do those smaller ones but still do it at uh, a cost efficient level so it, it just goes back to that. You just need to have the right people on your team. It doesn't, because I'm not there, right? I'm not, I'm not going to manage it myself. That's probably good. Like, it's just, they're going to know in the, in the, the feedback and the ideas that they've given us just in terms of uh, what to do with this value add strategy, you know, that you said before, they know the assets. Well, they know the market well, right. And then they know everybody, they know all the contractors, they know who's going to charge a lot, but it'll be licensed work. They know who's going to do it for really cheap. If you just need, you know, something easy done, like there's, they already have all of those relationships, which would take me years to do that if I was going to do that myself. So running the asset management through the management group in the, in the area that you're, I mean, I'm so sort of fond of them and, and, and what they've already done for me that my strategy now is, is, when I pick another market, it's going to be where they are, right? I'm I'm going to say, okay, where are you guys? Where are you guys located? Where are you, you know, managing properties? I already know sort of that they are managing properties in areas that I like in the southeast, so it's an easy match. But it's kind of like that. That just gives me I already have that relationship. So uh, trying to start in a new market from scratch will be a lot harder than starting a new market and already having at least the management group in place. And your, uh, so are, 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 is the, the fund set up where you're identifying a deal, uh, tying the deal up, going and sourcing the capital, or are you raising the capital, then going and sourcing the deal? Deal first, then raising the capital. Um, I have, I have mixed feelings on funds. Um, I have, I personally don't think that as someone early in syndication that I would likely be able to create a fund that was very successful, right? I think you need to have a track record and stuff like that when you're setting up a fund. And I think people people have, once they do that and they already have these investors, it's easy for them to fill up their fund. And then, and then it's easy to find properties too, because you already have the money in place and you're like, yeah, here, we have, you can show you this bank account that has the, you know, $5 million that we would need to raise. So it makes your, uh, makes the certainty of close higher. And so, you know, the brokers like that better. Everybody, the sellers like it better. Everybody likes that better. I just think that's probably a really high bar for someone early in the game to kind of step up and say, I'm going to, I'm going to create a fund. I have, because I have that interest in sort of helping veterinarians, in my in the back of my mind, I have the idea of having you know sort of veterinary based funds or fund uh, at some point where once we have a track record and I've 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 already got you know some veterinarians lined up to invest in in these deals, so it's it's starting uh, and I I think the you know it's that type of thing that builds momentum I think pretty quickly. So yeah, maybe in the future uh, we might have a fund based model. Um, but as an investor in other people's deals, I, I don't actually like investing in a fund. I want, I like to pick, and that's just because I have interest, right? I, and I, I know 
I know enough to be dangerous. Maybe I know enough to, to say, oh, this deal looks good to me. This one doesn't with a fund that's kind of that those, you know, sort of blind funds, you just put your money in, you trust, trust the sponsor, which is great. If you don't want to know, if you don't, if you just want to trust that person, you want to know anything about the assets that are being purchased. Sure. That's I, there's nothing wrong with that strategy. I just think you have to know either as an active or a passive investor, what your strategy is. So that's my reluctance to invest in a fund passively is maybe why I'm not super keen on creating a fund myself right now. So there, there's, uh, there are certainly inherent benefits, right? You know, when, when you can show up and, and as you had stated and verify that you have the cash, not only are you more competitive in the bid process, but deals have a way of funneling their, their, their way to you, right? You start to be sought out in the market, but it also comes at a steep cost, right? When you're, when you're, when you have a fund, you're typically paying interest on or target interest on that money from the time it hits the accounts, right? And that creates pressure, right? Velocity of money becomes a major factor. And sometimes that's where, you know, mistakes happen, right? When, when you're feeling the pressure and, and you, you haven't been able to deploy that capital, those deals that, you know, maybe you, you were a little bit uh, more vigilant in your scrutiny of, you, you, you kind of, you know, start to rationalize things a little bit. So I applaud you for, for doing it the way you're doing it. And, and you're, you're finding a way to identify the deal. You're going, you're raising the capital. Let's talk about what happens next, right? So the deal is now uh, under contract. Um, how are you financing these things? What type of leverage are you seeking? What, yeah. what partners are you going to for this? It, it obviously, it depends on the, on the deal, what, what financing you're going to have. And, and I've, <laughs> very quickly gotten uh, quite an education in all the different options because it's all kind of thrown at you and, and it depends on the deal structure. So um, interestingly, the first deal that we got into, um, the seller had its own lending group and they wanted us to use their lending group uh, as part of the sort of sort of stipulations for getting the deal. Again, trying to get a deal. Okay. We'll use, we'll use your lending group. We put in a, a, a clause in the in the purchase and sale agreement that said essentially if if you know if you can't perform we get an extension to try and go you know get uh debt from someone else so so we protected ourselves but i i didn't have a problem using their as long as the terms are good then then fine i don't i don't necessarily have a problem using their thing so in that deal uh you know sort of we were initially we were thinking it was going to be bridge debt because um, because it's been sort of undermanaged. And I think that um, there's a, a, a fair bit of CapEx that we want to do to make it nicer. And so initially the quotes we saw on bridge debt were better than what they actually turned out to be once we saw term sheets. And so it just so turned out they managed to find us some agency debt through Fannie Mae that had great terms. And I was like, well, well, yeah, we'll do, we'll do that. Of course, like that, that makes a lot of sense. One, because as I'm sure you know, that the you need to build a resume in uh, having agency debt to sort of keep getting agency debt or to make it easier to get agency debt. And that brings up probably another you know part to, to answer your question is as, as a new syndicator who 
doesn't have you know millions of dollars sitting in the bank account, you need to bring someone in as a loan guarantor, a key principal that has the net worth and liquidity and experience levels to sort of satisfy, especially the agency debt, what they what they want. And it, it's outside of agency debt, you probably can get a lot more leeway, but you're going to pay a much higher interest rate, right? So you're, you're essentially going to pay for that risk. So um, so yeah, we, we brought in uh, a key principal that, that had that um, liquidity and net worth. And so it's, you know, people always say it's a, it's a team sport and for sure it is. It's not a thing that, um, <laughs> could it be done on my own? May, you know what I mean? Like maybe it's a possible for someone to do it on their own. I don't want to say it's impossible, but it's, there's so many moving parts that it, it's very, very hard. And it's, you know, maybe you could do it on your own if you had employees, I guess, to, to do some of the, the tasks, but it is very helpful to bring in partners that can, you know, the, 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 um, you know, you might, there's different roles, right? There's like acquisitions and underwriting, then there's capital raising, then there's asset management. There's sort of those components to the whole syndication deal. And it's very, very hard to wear all those hats. It, it, yeah, it certainly is. It's, it's interesting yeah. that you, you found an asset where uh, you were contemplating bridge debt. And again, uh, folks, you know, bridge debt is for, uh, you know, Doc finds a, a property, it needs, it needs a bunch of work, it's not stabilized. Uh, uh, either there's underperforming tenants, or there's a, a fair amount of vacancy, uh, right? It's not cash flowing the way it should. Um, and these bridge lenders, they charge a premium, but they'll come in and essentially give you short-term money. They're the bridge, right? To permanent financing or agency financing. Um, and it's not typical and, and you, you know, good job on your part to, to be playing in the bridge world and find agency money pre-stabilization. That's, that's quite a, an accomplishment yeah. there. There's I mean, not I, a lot of that happening. I don't know that I can take any credit for it. It really was just the, the lending group and, I, and, and credit to him. Uh, he, he worked really hard to find it. Cause I mean, and he knew there was obviously incentive, right? Because in the, in the PSA, we had that sort of built in where, yes, we'll use your group, your, your lending group, but if it's not a good, not good terms, then we get to go find our own. So they have incentive to, to have it be, you know, kind of what we want. And so he, I mean, he shopped it out everywhere and, and uh, I, I'm very happy now with what, <laughs> with the terms that we have. I think, I think it's great. Um, you know, there's, there's pros and cons to every different type of debt, right? The, the bridge debt, you said it's short term. It's, it's easy to get out of, right? There's not usually a lot of prepayment penalties, whereas the agency debt there is. So it's, you know, although the interest rate might be lower and things like that, now we have to think about in terms of exit, when we exit matters because we have that, you know, potential prepayment penalty. Um, you know, I, I mentioned we, <laughs> we're sort of uh, working through all this because the other deal was a loan assumption. And so then I'm, I'm learning about loan assumptions and supplemental debt and all of this. And it's just, it's just funny to kind of work through it all and, and see uh, it's again, it, you know, it's, it's important. It's another part of that team, right? The, the lenders, what, having people that you can go to and say, here's the deal. What do you think? You know, cause you want to have an idea of kind of what to expect from a debt standpoint before you really get it locked up and you maybe put down hard money because if you don't get that, 
that changes the returns dramatically. So it, it's kind of a something you want to you want to have someone you trust to to give you that information pretty sort of right off the bat. Yeah, I mean it, it profoundly changes the the pro forma, right? I mean we're we're talking about most most bridge deals we're seeing up here now uh, between eight and ten percent. Um, sometimes there's a point or two involved um, and stabilized uh, institutional debt. You know, you're down in the threes and fours. Uh, it, it, you know, you're talking about a significant delta there. So um, yeah. you, are most of the assets that you're targeting underperforming or in need of a, a facelift now? Are you buying straight, stabilized, you know, 95% occupancy, you know, deals? Or are you looking for those elbow grease deals? I think, again, probably, you know, has a lot to do with my construction background, but I think to me, I really do like the idea of the value add. I think that there's, there's more to be gained there, right? Like the, the upside would be higher than a stabilized deal. I'm not, I'm not against it, right? If it's a good deal and it, and it uh, you know, we can get good returns for investors. It doesn't, I'm okay with a stabilized deal, but I think it's, <laughs> I think I probably would still go in there and be like, okay, how can we make this even better? You know, kind of, it wouldn't, it, I don't know that I would just sit back and say this one's stabilized. I don't have to do anything. So I, I, I approach it all with that kind of mentality of how can we, how can we make this better? Um, you know, and in those stabilized deals, maybe it's a matter of just amenities, right? You put, put a nice, a nice playground or, or a, a fitness center or something like that. So, something for the tenants just to kind of make it a, a more desirable um, asset to live in. Sure. And, and those little um, micro adjustments go a long way, right? Yeah. Yeah. Those little amenities are the things, folks, that will likely distinguish you um, in, in your market when folks are, are researching uh, a place that they want to live, a place they may want to raise their family, right? Uh, having the ability to stand out with those amenities um, really do win the day when when you're in a, a, a tougher environment and you really are competing for tenants. So um, I think we have a pretty good understanding on the deal side. Doc, can you walk us through just a, a few minutes on the investment side, right? Uh, uh, I'm a vet or I'm, I'm someone that's, uh, you know, a passive investor. What does your process look like? How, what can we expect if we want to invest in your fund or not in your fund in in your syndications? What, what would that look like for us? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the process, well, if you, if you back up to, you know, what kind of raise is it, right? So um, there's sort of two different types that are commonly occur. There's the 506B and 506C. 506B, people talk about it's a, you know, sort of that friends and family type of capital raise where you don't, you can have sophisticated investors that aren't accredited up to 35 of them. So you may have friends and family that they, they may not meet the accredited investor criteria, but they're interested in sort of bettering their lives with, with, you know, what, what I think is a, a very safe um, investment versus the 506C, which is all accredited, accredited investors, but the 506C you can advertise. So there's, there's pros and cons to both. Um, generally what it looks like, you know, from my standpoint is because we're th this first deal, at least we're doing a 506B, I'm not allowed to advertise it. So it's just, I'm reaching out to, everyone I know that, <laughs> that I think might be interested in the deal. Um, 
again, a lot of them are veterinarians. Uh, a lot of us don't have a background in this. So there is a lot of um, discussion, education, you know, it's, it's some people I'm talking to two, three, four times before they're comfortable, but I feel like that's, that's just a part of it, right? Like that's how we have to get there over time. That part will get easier and easier, but it's, it's a matter of, I don't, I don't want someone to invest if they're not comfortable. So I, I strongly believe in, in the asset class. I strongly believe in these deals. I'm investing my own money in, in my own deals. So it's not, I'm not just trying to sell something. And so it's easy for me to sort of get excited about it and just, you know, <laughs> be all worked up and this is going to be awesome. But the, the, uh, I, I definitely have to, you know, sort of scale it back and, and just listen to the questions that they're asking. You know, some pe- everybody has different concerns, right? Some people, you know, some people are very much, they're looking at the upside. Some people are very much looking at the downside. What, what could possibly go wrong? You know, that kind of thing where, you know, I've had some people say, I feel like you'll probably outperform on this deal. And it's like, well, so do I, but we can't, <laughs> that's not how we can, you want to present it, right? Under, under right, promise right. and over deliver. I don't want to tell you that we're going to have, uh, you know, a, a 10% cash on cash return, and then you get a 7% cash on cash. Return. It's much better to go the other way. So it's just kind of managing expectations. Um, I don't know. I feel like I do that a lot in my job as a veterinary surgeon. Right, I've got to explain a fairly complicated thing to people. You know, surgery on their pet. I've got to explain that in a way that they can understand it and feel comfortable with it. So, it's a similar, I think, process uh, in terms of how you know how I go about sort of talking to people, talking people through it. And and I know you had said you're you're raising money for specific deals, but do you have any uh, kind of typical guidelines? How long? Is there a lockup period, right? How long can people expect their cash to be tied up? Uh, what what do target returns look like? Uh, are there capital gains events at the end of these things, or are you refi cashing out and just paying people back? What, what does that process look like for you? So, um, I th- on a general basis, we're th- we're thinking a you know like a three to seven year hold, probably more like three to five. Um, we don't really have the intention to sort of refi and kind of keep going from there. It depends on, it just depends on the deal too. Like you talked about the capital gains events. Most, most sales are going to have a capital gains event at the end, unless you're not in an opportunity zone. And then you have, you know, sort of those things to think about. And um, so I guess it depends a little bit on the deal, but in general, I think we're, you know, in that three to five range. And again, it depends on the debt because the bridge debt is typically going to be about three years. So if you can stabilize that asset and and, uh, sort of complete your business plan in three years, you might be better off at that point, just selling, you know, exiting and, 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 you know, sort of moving on to the next one. Um, I do have ideas in the future of having some that are just, like for my family, where, you know, I might do something like that, you know, maybe a smaller property where we go in with some bridge debt, uh, fix it up and then, and then refinance it to like a HUD loan that's, that's long and low interest rate. And just, you know, this is for my kids, right? Like they just, (laughs) they have a thing that just keeps giving cash flow forever, you know, and if they don't want it when I'm gone, they, they can sell it. But it's just, I I think for me, it depends. I, I feel 
a lot of people, uh, you'll hear them talk about really getting into a specific niche and, and you have, you know, I semi agree with that, I guess. I also believe in being opportunistic. So it's like when, when I started Lark Capital, um, we, it, I have a, I have a, a business partner in Lark Capital. He's, he's literally just a capital partner. He doesn't, he doesn't even want to have any input on how the business goes, but it allows us to pool our money and, and be more, you know, sort of effective. So we do that when we, when we started out, uh, and I realized how hard it was to find deals that would work. Um, we started just thinking, okay, well now we just put a bunch of money in this account. It's just sitting there getting, you know, minimal interest. And so we did some private money lending uh, on for some uh, flippers because that's a quick turnaround on the money, right? So you yep. get your you get your investment back in three to six months, and you have you're getting uh, you know some interest rate on the money through that time. Um, I ended up just through networking, connecting with a group who was doing. They used to do multifamily, and they've moved to self storage, and they were doing a joint venture model. And they said, "Do you want you want to be a part?" sure if it's a good deal <laughs> like i'm happy to come in there and 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 it's it's a joint venture model i don't it's mostly it's it's a joint venture that is managed a lot like a syndication in the sense that they mostly take care of it um but it's kind of i, I just saw opportunity to put our money to work and so it's kind of do i think that i'll be like a self storage mogul no I really, I think multifamily makes more sense to me. Uh, I feel like I, I can affect the value on multifamily more than I can on self-storage. So it's maybe it's just not as fun. I don't know, but it, it's, uh, I, I think just being open to what's out there and educating yourself enough to, to actually not make, hopefully not a dumb decision, right? Not put, yeah. not putting your money someplace <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. It's, it's funny when you, when you get yourself out there on social media as a, as a, capital group uh some of the messages and, and people i've got reaching out for money <laughs> do you invest in this you know certain sort of weird thing no no sorry <laughs> thank you for reaching out but but no i'm not gonna, i'm not gonna do that but it's so it's like i and i have said this in in <laughs> my rest of my life too is it, i don't tend to just say no right off the bat I want to, I want to kind of hear what the opportunity is so I can and make my decision. I don't want to miss out on something if, if it's good. So a, a couple of great points there when uh, we were putting together our subscription booklet, right. For yeah. uh, a raise, it, it was a challenge because there, you get a lot of advice on these things, right. And, and there's that mindset of, well, no, you, you just want to be experts in one little sub-market of sub-market of sub-market and, and people get, right. <laughs> you're an expert on the street. Right. Right. You know, and then investors get nervous if there's too much, uh, too many different diverse opportunities. And we just felt like, no, you know, we, we've got a really wide, um, birth of expertise. We've been doing this for a long time and we felt it was very limiting, right? Mm -hmm. If there were opportunity, like good deals are good deals. And if, if it made sense, like you said, to deploy some capital in first position at a 50% LTV at 14% with two points for, you know, with a minimum of one, one year and a six month payout, 
you do that deal, right? Like it's just, and I applaud you for that and, and for, for doing that because that's, that's when you're really working for your investors, right? That's when you're really, you're, you're driving value there. And, and people seem to be timid in, in that regard, but good for you in doing that um, because there is a lot of different money to be made in different places. You don't want to be disorganized and you don't want to be chasing, uh, you know, different rabbit holes, but you certainly want to be able to fill voids on your terms, mm-hmm. right? When the opportunities present themselves. So you mentioned um, opportunity zones. Are, do you have a QOF set up? Are you doing OZ stuff or no? So I technically, yes, I am. A, I am in a, a one opportunity zone fund. It, it's it's through one of my, my business partners. He, we were introduced actually through our uh, mutual mentor and probably, I mean, I think it's been over a year now. And really we just kind of, we talk a lot, we, we, we hit it off and um, the, he was working on a development project in an opportunity zone, a student housing development project. And I had, when I learned about opportunity zones and sort of the tax benefits to that, I had thought, I really liked the idea that I could pull some money out of stocks, uh, you know, get rid of some of that capital gains there and then exit at the end um, with no capital gains. And I don't mind holding for 10 years. I think a lot of people, don't like that idea, but but I, I didn't. It doesn't really bother me. Um, and so, initially, the discussion was, I'm, I want to invest in your deal. Th- that deal got pushed back because of COVID quite a bit. And so, over the time, and and I actually am very interested in development. I again, that construction background, I think is very. So I just we kept talking, and he was like, "Do you want to be a Do you want to be a part of this? Do you want to you know maybe raise some capital and 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 be in the deal for for a small percentage?" And I was like, "Yes, I I don't. Again, it's that opportunistic thing. Like, it's like I don't even really care about what I'm getting for." fees or percentages or whatever, like I'm actually just very interested in development. So here's a here's an opportunity for me to learn something new and also maybe make a little bit of money from it. So but it, it's like the money wasn't the driving force on that. I don't it's it's not really uh, it, it's more about if I can learn how to do development, that just it's like another, you know, putting another tool in my tool belt. Yeah, so we we were really bullish on OZs. We spent yeah, a lot of time on them. We've got a few QOFs, uh, and we've got some holdings in different different states. But for unfortunately, here the New York decoupled from the federal benefit, and California too. California yeah. doesn't doesn't recognize them. Like, you know. Really, <laughs> you know, like it, it, it just it was such a great program. And we're now seeing money funnel out of mm-hmm. New York into surrounding states, into the areas that need it the most because they decoupled from from the benefits. So, uh, again, for you, I, I figured I'd touch on it. Having the construction background, there's a lot of neat things you can do with the QOFs if, if you do have a construction background. So again, you know, right on the mark, good for you. Um, you know, we're, we're getting a little tight on time. I've got a couple of more I just wanted to round out on. Are you targeting uh, program-based tenants and assets or are you, are you targeting market rents for the most part in your portfolio? Um, currently not program-based, uh, more market rent. There, uh, what I, Again, another thing I learned with all of this, you know, sort of lending, um, <laughs> investigating is you can, you get a, a savings on interest rates to some level if you keep the rent. It's not, 
it's technically not, you know, uh, low income housing or, or program based housing. But if you keep the rents below a certain level, you can still get a um, reduction on your interest rate. So that's something that uh, I think can actually be valuable in some of these in some of these markets and some of these, um, you know, sort of developing markets that whether they're opportunity zone or not. Um, yeah, so I, I think I wouldn't be against it, but I, I don't, I don't know it. I don't, I'm not familiar with, you know, how to, how that works and how they're, how to manage those. So I, it would be a matter of, again, like learning another thing or finding, finding a, a property management group that's, that specializes in that. Got it. Um, Doc, I think what you're doing is great. Um, yeah. I'm a big believer in, you know, advocating for and promoting the financial literacy component, something that again is so obvious yet, yet so far into so many folks, uh, you know, it, it's what we're weaving it into our institute Absolutely. that we're building out here is, you know, when, when you we really sat and talked about it in book club, it was like, you know, we know these things, but, but mm -hmm. nobody really teaches, teaches yeah. you this. And, and certainly for the newbies that come on board, uh, we wanted to offer just some sort of, of background. So folks understood, um, some of those core principles, you know, we think it, it's really important in, in, in developing the career and, and in happiness, you know, in getting to financial freedom. So, uh, sure. you know, I, I think what you're doing is outstanding. How do folks find you? What's the best way to find you, Doc? Um, they can email me. Uh, it's jason at larkcapital.com. Um, I'm also on in, probably Instagram as far as social media is the one I use the most, and it's just at larkcapital. Um, so they're... It, uh, easy to find. Uh, mm -hmm. It shouldn't be. Yeah. But if anyone wants to reach out, please do. Um, I always enjoy talking about this stuff. And I, I think especially to young people, I, I train, yes. I train interns and residents and I'm it's sure they're sick of me talking about this stuff, but I'm like, listen, mm -hmm. you guys, when you leave here, you're going to, when you're going to be used to not making a lot of money. And then all of a sudden you're going to make a lot of money. Pretend you're still not making a lot of money for like mm -hmm. two years and you can change your life for the rest of your life. You won't, you, you're, you're in a position at, at a young age um, to, you know, sort of have a, a vastly increased income um, and, and you can make it work for you. So I think it's just, you know, it, it's awesome that you're implementing that stuff at, at, at your um, company. And, and I guess I'm sort of trying to, <laughs> sort of trying to do that <laughs> with the people I work with too. Uh, but I think, yeah, it's, it, once you realize how good it is, it's hard to stop kind of being excited about it and talking about it. It, it sure is. Well, we really appreciate the time today, folks. He's the doc, Jason Ballara, uh, CEO over at Lark Capital Group. Best of luck, man. If we can ever be an asset, you know, you know how to find us and uh, appreciate the time today. Yeah, I appreciate you. Thank, thanks for having me on, James. Thanks, Mike. Absolutely. Stay safe. Thank you. You too. Thanks, everyone.